ETF Prime is hosted by Nate Geracine, president of investment advisory firm, the ETF Store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF Trends and ETF Database or any of its affiliates. ETF Trends and ETF Database participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF Trends and ETF Database of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, joining me this week will be Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. If you look at broad asset class returns so far this year, I think we all know the story, which is not much is working right now. The S&P 500 is down 16%. Broad bonds are down 10%. International stocks, REITs, pretty much anywhere you look, everything is down. However, one area that is working right now is commodities. If you look at broad commodity ETFs, uh, so for example, something like PDBC, the Invesco Broad Commodity Strategy ETF, these are up in the neighborhood of 25 to 30%. Oil ETFs, agriculture ETFs, gold ETFs, other single commodity ETFs, just about all of these are positive in 2022. This week, Tom is going to go in-depth on the commodity ETF space. And in particular, we're going to look at which commodity ETFs are seeing the most engagement from investors and advisors at ETF Trends and ETF Database, which I think everybody knows. I absolutely love this type of data. I, I love seeing what other investors are doing. So we're going to find out which commodity ETFs are being most research right now. And then we'll also discuss the broader backdrop here with commodity ETF flows and performance. I'll then be joined by Yasmin Daya Bilger, head of ETFs at Engine Number One, who, of course, they made a big splash last year with the launch of their Transform 500 ETF, ticker VOTE, great ticker symbol. This is basically an S&P 500 ETF that only charges five basis points. The difference is, Engine number one is attempting to actively engage with companies on key ESG issues. Uh, they're, they're attempting to leverage their voting power. And you may recall they had a, a very successful campaign last year against Exxon, which got a lot of attention. Uh, but they have a unique approach, which I think raises a lot of interesting questions around how proxies will be voted on in the future, especially as voting power continues consolidating among a handful of larger fund companies. So a lot here for us to discuss. And if you haven't heard Yasmin before, just a tremendous speaker and someone who knows the ETF landscape and ESG inside and out. I think you'll really enjoy hearing from her. And then to close this week, 
I guess we have a little uh, angel and devil thing going on. I'll be joined in studio by Tommy Mancuso, president and co-founder of the Bad Investment Company. They're behind the BAD ETF, ticker symbol BAD, B-A-D, which this is not ESG-focused at all. As you might gather from the name, this holds things like alcohol and cannabis companies, drug companies, casinos. So we're going to go in the uh, complete opposite direction of ESG and hear from Tommy on the merits of owning uh, SIN stocks right now, which I'll note, like commodities, some of these have been working uh, pretty well this year. So great show. As always, questions or comments, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments to ETFprime.com. Let's start with ETF Trends, Tom Hendrickson. Now we're joined by the experts at ETF Trends and ETF Database, the world's largest independent ETF-centric source for top industry news, trends, and insights. We can deliver value to that advisor because that's what they're telling that they want to engage in. We want to make sure that we're putting the right pieces of content in front of them at the right time. Tom, great having you back on the podcast. Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Anything for us to uh, talk about in the markets right now? No kidding. Uh, there, there's there's no shortage of uh, of things to dive into here, Nate. Uh, like I like I say, I know um, if you rolled back the clock uh, to when when the COVID crisis hit, financial advisor when when there's periods of stress in the market, it's when their job becomes the most difficult. There's so many different things coming at them, and and as you mentioned in your preamble, you know the the confluence of factors and the performance of almost everything across asset classes and as we've come into 2022 has made for a, a really challenging time. So excited to share um, some of the ways in which, you know, the data is pointing our advisor community where they're drilling in and then ultimately how they can uh, employ those in their portfolio construction and, and their client conversations. Yeah. So I was thinking about our conversation today and, you know, as I thought more about it, even if we go back to last year, I feel like we knew interest in commodities was increasing. I, I, I distinctly remember you and I discussing this on multiple occasions and really on two fronts, right? We talked about uh, this narrative around the death of the 60-40 portfolio and investors looking for alternatives to bonds. And then we obviously did have uh, inflation really starting to cook. Now, uh, the Fed didn't see that, but uh, Tom, you and I did. And so we talked about how that could potentially benefit commodities. Now, look, I don't have a crystal ball. I always say my crystal ball is broken, but we did talk about both of those things. And so I guess from my perspective, if we look at what's happened this year with commodity ETFs, I would say on one hand, I don't think the flows and performance is all that shocking. Now, on the other hand, I don't think most people expected a Russia invasion of Ukraine to exacerbate the situation. And I think some people would say inflation is certainly running uh, even hotter than what was expected coming into the year. So I do think it's still eye-opening to see what's going on with commodity ETFs. I, I, I guess the question that I'll, I'll, I'll start off with you uh, with is, do, do you think this is a, a flash in the pan with, with commodities, or do you feel like commodities are now here to stay because we've had this, this shifting environment? Well, Nate, I want to um, steal your line as well. As my, I have no crystal ball. It's not only broken, it's just non-existent. Uh, but to your, to your point about what we were talking about in, in the fall and even late summer last year, is the advisor community who engages with, with ETF Trends and ETF Database, tens of thousands of advisors on a monthly basis, sorry, weekly basis, um, 
they were drilling into the commodities complex with the understanding that inflation was one of their biggest fears even back then. And so we're constantly in market looking and, and polling advisors about what is most top of mind for them in terms of their concerns. And so just to, to, to reiterate, when we did that most recently with a group of about 400 advisors just last week, by far inflation remained the biggest concern at about 52%. Uh, followed by market valuations with about another 33%. The, the leftover change there was finding income, a theme that we've also talked about, and then a very small sliver about increasing taxes. taxes. So the, the lion's share of the concern really remained focused on inflation and market valuations. And then when you drill into that question around uh, the flash in the pan, where do commodities fit, we asked that same advisor community what, what their plans for allocating to commodity funds and ETFs were, Nate. 77% of them said that they're looking to increase allocations or looking for new funds or ETFs to gain commodity exposure. 13% not making any changes. Only 1% I am decreasing allocations. And about 8% said I don't allocate to commodity products. So 77% of that, that advisor respondent group was saying, I'm looking to increase my allocation here. And, and I think from that I take, uh, rather than this being more of a tactical shift at, or, or a short-term shift in nature, I think that the advisors are telling us through their actions that there's something bigger going on here and that they're treating it more of a, a strategic allocation decision that could be more embedded into the portfolio construction for a longer period of time. I agree. So just to be clear, you're saying almost 80% of advisors said that they are planning on increasing allocations or, or looking to invest in commodity ETFs moving forward. Is that right? That's right, Nate. And, and that's, that's, that's recent data. And, and so obviously that um, takes into account a lot of those flows that have already happened in those products. So the concern is being raised. And, and it speaks to the fact that as we've kind of deconstructed the 60-40 and thinking about, um, you know, the component parts there, it seems like commodities exposure based on what the advisors are telling us is, is becoming a, um, a greater area of interest and one that they're taking more seriously in terms of the longer term nature of where it fits in the portfolio. No, I completely agree. I mean, that definitely points to a real shift in, in the mindset because I think most in I shouldn't say most. I think many advisors are more strategic and longer term in nature. There are certainly advisors who are more tactical. But I think if you talk to the majority of advisors, they do take a longer term view on the markets. And so to see almost 80 percent looking uh, to, to allocations in commodity ETFs, I, I think that shows um, there, there has been a change here. Uh, and there's always going to be a subset of advisors, even if they're strategic, they may look at the past you know, year or two and look at performance and say, hey, something's performed well, you know, let's jump into that. I, I certainly don't advocate that, but I, I know that's out there. But 80% to me just seems like too big of a number. And it just speaks to this environment change that we've had. You and I've talked about this quite a bit about how uh, most advisors and investors have never had to experience an inflationary environment before. They've never had to invest in this environment. And even in a, a rising rate environment, we had rates jump up in the fourth quarter of 2018. Um, and, and there was that market down move. But there hasn't been really more of a prolonged experience of investing in a rising rate environment. And so I think this has advisors' radars up. How do we handle this? What do we do? We haven't been here before. 
Well, well, that's the thing is that the sort of the meta point there, Nate, is that um, I think the advisor community, and we're seeing this pop up in a whole bunch of ways through our behavioral data, suggesting that advisors are very much um, taking the this shift in the mark, the broader market environment, um, really seriously. <clears throat> if we go back to you know coming out of the financial crisis, even not going all the way back to you know the late 70s when we were, was the last time we experienced levels of inflation that we're at right now, but even the last 10 to 12 year period um, was a was a real interesting period where there was was low inflation, low rates, um, certain types of of stocks generally worked really really well. And, and we've seen a, a really about face, almost a 180 from that. And so, you know, as, as we look across our, our data set, one of the things that I, I like to drill into is I like to take two different um, asset classes or areas of the market where advisors are spending their attention and just do a heads up analysis. Which one of those is gaining more attention versus the other when you kind of compartmentalize them into uh, that specific viewpoint? And so I'll, I'll use a couple examples of where we're seeing this shift. Um, so one, you know, let's, let's take, stay on the commodities theme. So for every minute of advisor attention, 12 months ago, they were allocating about 45 seconds of that minute out of the 60 to interest and, and content around the cryptocurrency space, whereas the, the remainder, the 15%, was spent on commodities-related content. Nate, that's absolutely flipped. It, it's now 45 seconds out of those 60s is being spent on, on research and, and uh, you know, consuming content around the commodity space and, and a, a mere 15% or 15 seconds on, on the crypto space. In a similar way, uh, U.S. large cap tech has seen uh, a significant decrease in attention from the advisor community when compared to how they're looking at the commodity space. So It, it really speaks to not just this, um, you know, five or eight percent of the portfolio construction, but how advisors are thinking about the, the broad allocation of assets and ultimately where they're looking to, you know, gain exposure to certain types of return profiles. And I think that that's that's really interesting and, and ultimately is um, uh, additive to what we had talked about even last summer. But advisors are, are now even spending more time and getting more serious about that as we think about hey, is this a shift for the next couple quarters? Or, or, or are advisors more so approaching this as this is a years-long change in, in the market environment which we're operating? Obviously, time will tell, but certainly some of the data points to the fact that they think that it may be longer-term in nature. That's really interesting on the crypto side, and I guess points to what we're seeing so far this year, where the jury is out on how good of a diversifier this is, and is crypto an inflation hedge? There's a lot of questions out there that I don't think haven't been answered yet. Of course, crypto is still a nascent asset class. It hasn't been through various market cycles, but uh, that, that's an interesting data point to see how that research time has really come down significantly from uh, last year. And I guess fits with the overall market narrative we're seeing now, and that 2022 is a completely different market <laughs> environment than what we saw in, uh, in 2021. What, one other uh, data point I'll, I'll offer here, Tom, and I want to get into some uh, ETFs. I was looking this morning, over $20 billion has gone into commodity ETFs so far this year. If you look at some of the other asset classes, just as an example, there's been about $26 billion into U.S. fixed income ETFs. I mean, that's a big number for commodity ETFs to post throughout you know, these first four plus months of the year. I, I was blown away by that. Um, okay, so so as you look at engagement 
at ETF Trends and, and ETF Database and you start drilling down into specific ETFs, give us some tickers here. What, what are some tickers that have been popping? Yeah, absolutely. Well, so one of the things, even just before getting to the ticker level, Nate, um, is that as, as we think about, as you break down the commodities, is obviously there's different types of commodities exposure, and we can look at the levels of interest even at those uh, more granular exposures. So you've got broad-based commodities exposure, en energy, agriculture, industrial metals, precious metals are, are sort of the five bigger categories. So of, of those categories, the, the lion's share of the interest is, is going to energy, precious metal, and then broad-based commodity exposure. And so you mentioned, um, you know, specifically the broad-based are, are somewhat interesting and are seeing um, some of the most engagement. So, so PDBC, so, so kind of the granddaddy of the commodities, broad-based exposure, nearly a, well, it's over a $9 billion fund now. Uh, you know, just an asset gathering uh, machine at the fund level, over $3.3 billion has flown into that uh, product in the last year. Uh, the lion's share of that, 2.75, has flown in just year to date. So that's certainly seen huge engagement across the platform. But that's not, um, it, you know, it's not um, on, the only one from a broad-based perspective. And so there's a, a number of issuers have uh, products in market. And I'll, I'll point to one of the smaller uh, products. It's a Direction product. So the Direction Auspice Broad Commodity Strategy ETF, ticker COM. Um, that's also seeing, you know, a significant amount of flows. Smaller fund, only about a $500 million fund, but um, nearly half of that has come in just within the last year. So there's some great options out there as people look at, you know, be it the broad-based exposure, or obviously you get into, you know, specific metals, you know, GLD, um, you know, those, those types of products, um, you know, where you want have a specific um, metal exposure, a silver fund, and there's an Invesco fund. DBS, which provides, you know, uh, exposure specifically to silver. And, and then, you know, if, as you get into that agricultural um, subset, there's a number of Tucrium products uh, who, who have really popped. So you can get exposure in an ETF wrapper to soybeans, to wheat, to corn. You know, these are areas that, you know, for, for a number of years saw, saw very little engagement. But, you know, though the engagement in the last couple of quarters has really kind of shot through the roof. Um, which is interesting for a number of reasons, obviously the macro point, but also speaks to the fact that you can access almost any strategy at this stage in the ETF wrapper. There's certainly more opportunity for innovation, but you, you didn't have to roll back the clock too, too far before the accessibility to this level of granularity of commodities exposure wasn't as easy. Tom, just a, a few minutes left here. You know, I know we're focusing on commodities, and I thought that was a great rundown of the various ETFs you're seeing engagement on. But as I noted earlier, clearly one of the main reasons there there is more interest in commodities is because some investors are rethinking the 40% the bonds in a 60-40 portfolio. But even then, how do I explain this? Most investors aren't just going to shun bonds altogether, right? Maybe they'll reduce the allocation a bit, but bonds do serve a, an important role. And nobody's moving from 60-40 to, say, 90% stocks and 10% commodities. At least I, I, I don't think so. I, I hope not. And so I think it's interesting to consider how this environment is also changing the way investors view whatever allocation they'll end up having to, to bonds. Like, we, we know there's been a move to shorter duration and floating rate notes, tips, those sorts of things. 
But I, I know you also have some data on how investors might be shifting their approach a bit on the bonds they own. Do, do you want to briefly touch on that? Because I think that's an important point. Happy to run through that. Um, so, Nate, exactly. I think sometimes, uh, you know, the narrative around the death of the 60-40 gets conflated with uh, advisors and investors should no longer own any fixed income. And, and certainly to your point that for, for the vast, vast majority, that's probably not the right strategy. And certainly most advisors would not run their portfolio. It's just a matter of what is the allocation? And then when, once you've decided on that, how are you then getting the exposure? So what's really interesting is we asked advisors just last week what their concerns with fixed income investing today is. And, and the, the biggest, almost 55% of the respondents was picking the right fixed income sectors, followed by uh, impact of passive strategies, uh, risk of corporate issuer um, default, liquidity across the fixed income market. Those three answers were, were about 15% each, making up the, the rest of the, the respondents there. But really the, the standout is the picking the right sectors. So advisors are saying, Hey, I'm, we're getting, um, we're rolling up our sleeves. We understand that we um, bonds long term will provide a ballast. We need to have exposure there, but they're they're saying, you know, maybe the ag isn't isn't good enough. There's other ways and other things that they're going to need to drill into, and ultimately they're going that level deeper. And you know, the ETF community is coming up with with certain exposures that are are helpful, um, but there's probably more opportunity for. Um, you know, our ecosystem to continue to innovate in that regard as advisors are saying that they want more tools in their toolbox as they think about whatever that fixed income allocation is and how they get that exposure. No, I think that's a good takeaway. I mean, you think about broad bonds, something like the ag off to its worst start. I, I saw something from uh, the Wall Street Journal's Jason Zweig over the weekend, worst start since 1842 for broad bonds. Think about that. And so I, I think you have a lot of advisors saying, hey, I'm not just going to stand in front of this freight train and I'm going to look elsewhere to see uh, how I can better construct my fixed income portfolio. And, and that, I think that's interesting. Picking the right fixed income sectors for, from your poll standing out there. It, it's not just set it and forget it anymore on the fixed income side. Now, we'll see if that proves valuable over the long term. Uh, I, you know, I, I know in the past we've seen the story before where people get a little more tactical. That doesn't work out so well. But again, going back to how we started the conversation, if we are in a shifting market regime, uh, maybe that's going to be the order of the day moving forward. I guess, I guess we'll see. But um, Tom, we'll have to leave it there. Excellent insight uh, as always. Thank you for joining me this week. Appreciate it. That was Tom Hendrickson, president of ETF Trends and ETF Database. Introducing Capital Group's new actively managed ETFs. A new suite of ETFs brought to you by a company with a proven track record of long-term results, a 90-year history of navigating ups and downs, and everything behind it. Give your portfolio active management at the core. Explore what's behind our new active ETFs at capitalgroup.com ETFs. American Funds Distributors, Inc., member FINRA.
My next guest is Yasmin Daya Bilger, head of ETFs at Engine Number One, who debuted on the ETF scene about a year ago, and they're already approaching a half billion dollars in assets. They currently offer two ETFs, the Engine Number One Transform 500 ETF, ticker symbol VOTE, V-O-T-E, perfect ticker symbol, which we'll get into. And then the other ETF just launched in February, the Engine Number One Transform Climate ETF, ticker symbol NETS, N-E-T-Z. Yasmin is now joining me from New York. Yasmin, welcome back to the uh, podcast. If you recall, last time we connected, we were actually recording live in New York, which I've got to tell you, that seems like a decade ago. <laughs> it really, do, I mean, it really does feel like a lifetime ago. It probably <laughs> wasn't that long, but but that's very true. <laughs> All right. So, so look, I thought the best way to uh, really convey how engine number one is approaching the market is to just jump right in and discuss vote. And it's interesting because at first glance, somebody looks at this ETF, there's really nothing unique about it, right? It holds the top 500 U.S. companies by market cap. It charges a minuscule five basis point fee. This looks pretty plain vanilla. However, the magic here is in how engine number one goes about voting on the shares of companies held by this ETF. So let's start there because I think this really gets to the heart of what makes you different. So explain the idea behind vote. Yeah, absolutely. Um, So the the simple one-liner on vote is exactly what you said. It is a plain vanilla market cap fund on the investing side. In fact, by design, it looks a lot like what most people own in their portfolios today. Um, Where I say we're quite different is the way in which we're using those assets in our portfolio from a voting and engagement perspective. Now, at the risk of taking a step back, I, I do think it's worth talking about why before we get to how. I don't think most people really know how the system works around proxy voting. You know, publicly traded companies, they operate kind of like quasi-democracies with real accountability to their shareholders. So when you buy a company, not only do you have a right to a share of its profits, but you have a right to its decision to influence its decision making. And that is the proxy voting system. And every year, investors are casting votes at tens of thousands of proposals at public companies. I mean, they elect the board to represent them. They approve executive pay plans. Um, And to take it even further, if you as a shareholder disagree with how a company is being conducted, you can engage with management. um, And if you feel you aren't being heard, you can put forward what's called a shareholder proposal. In fact, every year, there are several hundred shareholder proposals that get put forward that are environmentally related or socially related. Um, What is a little more complicated for people is that, you know, most of us don't buy individual stocks anymore. We invest in mutual funds and ETFs. Um, And when you invest in a fund, you're delegating that vote to your manager because technically the manager is a shareholder. Now, voting power in our system is really concentrated that the top three largest passive providers own between 20 to 25 percent of the average S&P 500 company. Um, And what you've historically seen is that environmental and social shareholder proposals often fail at big companies. Um, And so these are issues that are, are often asking management for more transparency and information and reporting on things like carbon emissions, for example. Um, So the real opportunity from our perspective was to leverage the power of passive investing, which, as we know, is where assets have accumulated and continue to rapidly rapidly accumulate, but really focus on pushing companies in the way we vote. Um, So from a statistics perspective, the average S&P 500 fund voted against 80% of environmental and social shareholder proposals in the past five years. Since we've been live, um, 
which was about a little bit less than a year ago, we voted on 168 shareholder proposals and we supported 91 percent of those. So we're using our voting power to really push on topics um, that we think is really around transparency and accountability. And then we couple that with our really focused engagement engagements at some of the largest companies in our country. Let me ask you this, because I think that's a really interesting stat in terms of how you have voted versus other fund companies out there. And to your point, more investors are owning funds versus individual shares. And so this makes how fund companies vote even more important. And I know um, every fund company is going to go about things a little bit differently. So I guess without naming names, can you offer a little bit of a contrast here? Like from a process standpoint, how are some other fund companies going about voting proxies? Because I, I actually went to the uh, Engine Number One website, and I saw you have a 16-page document outlining everything behind your proxy uh, voting. It, it, it's a full document of your guidelines, how you're looking to drive positive impact. I'm curious, what do other fund companies typically do? It's a really good question, because I think one of the biggest opportunities for us as an industry is just more transparency on how you're approaching this question, how you're using the influence of the investors in your funds on very critical topics and issues at the largest companies in our country. So you see a really wide range of how different asset managers approach the question. Um, you know, on one hand, you actually see some asset managers who are you know, basically pre- predominantly focused on, let's call it ESG, who vote nearly 100% of the time on uh, in support of environmental and social shareholder proposals. We would probably say that we want to put more of a discerning eye to this because we want to focus on proposals that we think push for transparency and accountability, but are additive to shareholder value. On the other hand, you see a lot of large asset managers voting against them. And I think there's a few reasons why. I mean, one, these issues are complicated and, you know, they have multiple different investor types and in their platforms. Um, and I think in many cases, it's easier to push um, for topics through the engagement channel versus, you know, the voting channel where you're really actively voting against management. Um, but I do think there is one area where, as an industry, we've got we've to improve upon, which is this transparency piece. I, I don't think most people know this, but that right now, fund managers are not required to disclose their votes on a real-time basis. And sometimes you, as a fund holder, will be waiting up to 12 months to even know how a vote was cast. Um, and so, as you said, we first and foremost have a very detailed policy on our page. But beyond that, we actually now disclose our votes on a real-time basis on our website. Um, so someone someone who is invested with us can log on, and if they care about a topic or they saw a vote was up at a particular company, they can see very transparently how we voted. And that's the alignment I think we as an industry really need to drive towards. Um, and these issues are complicated. There's multiple ways to think about them. But I think, you know, in spirit, people who are investing with a manager should really know how that vote is being used. Um, and one of my favorite things to think about is I think most people think of market cap as being this entirely commoditized product and space. You know, it's all about size and trading and cost. And now there's just a new dimension, which is stewardship. You know, asset ownership. How, are, how is the asset owner, active ownership approach being used? Um, and so that, that, I think it's going to become more and more of a topic of conversation for people. I noted at the uh, top that engine number one has had a really nice response from the market so far. So I I look at vote that's already nearing $350 million in assets in in less than a year. However, you you are obviously still small compared to the iShares and and Vanguards of the world. And so the question that I have is, um, I know there was a a well-publicized situation last year with Exxon. 
where engine number one really took the initiative and was able to win uh, several board seats here. I, I'd love to have you talk a little bit more about that and perhaps explain how engine number one is able to, I would say, carry a big stick, even if assets are currently much smaller than the bigger players, which, by the way, I think it's interesting that some of those bigger players are also direct competitors to you as well, and you have to get them on board with your initiatives. Can you just talk about some of the uh, dynamics here? Yeah, it's it's so fascinating. So, uh, And there's a lot of lessons, I think, to take away from our campaign last year. So just everyone has the background. Last year, we um, launched a campaign uh, and we were focused at ExxonMobil and we we're focused on a few things. First was governance and the fact that we uh, were really advocating that the company needed more specific um, energy and transformational energy experience on their board. Um, the second was really focusing on their long-term capital allocation strategy. Um, in a world where we felt, you know, we were moving towards decarbonization and the demand picture being more opaque farther out. Um, what we were able to do is we placed three people on their board of directors. Um, and we also saw that during our campaign, the stock outperformed, you know, not just because energy was up, but their peers. I think the lessons about the system, though, are quite fascinating. The first is around size. Um, we owned two basis points of Exxon, um, which is a very different approach than you've typically seen from from activism. But where we were successful was we focused our arguments on shareholder value. We were not approaching the conversation around climate ideology or morality, which I think many people have done before us. We were focused on um, on the fact that our recommendations was, were, were good for shareholders. Now, now, why is that critical? Because when you link these arguments around environmental and social issues to shareholder value, you make it easy for other shareholders to come along with you. And that was how we were able to build a coalition of people to, to join us um, and ultimately get the three board members placed on the board. I think the second interesting sort of insight around the system is engagement versus divestment. Um, I would say the prevailing view in the market for the last couple of decades has been if you don't like how a company is operating, um, you should not own it. Um, and particularly when you think about what that means for climate, that meant that people were just wholesale excluding from their portfolios companies in high emitting sectors and, and, and energy just didn't appear in many people's portfolios. I think the campaign proved the benefit of the engagement channel, own and engage. Um, and I, and that's, that's fully one of our fundamental premises as a firm is, is an engagement focused strategy. But I think that combination of focusing on shareholder value and not sort of running away from the problem, but owning and engaging it are two areas where I think we really shine a light on. I think that's really well said. But l- let me ask you this. You had mentioned the um, the concentration of voting power earlier. And again, when you look at companies like iShares and, and Vanguard and the, the trend into low cost index based products, certainly they benefited from that. But one of the concerns you'll hear, and it's actually one the late uh, Jack Bogle voiced right before he passed away, is on the corporate governance side, that the growth of indexing is resulting in these companies wielding too much power. Um, two, two questions here. I mean, one, is that a concern of yours? Or do you think the tack that you took with somebody like Exxon, you can replicate that and that is the path moving forward? And then I guess the, the second question would be, if that is a concern, just in terms of this consolidation of, of voting power, what is the longer term solution? Because I would argue this move towards indexing isn't going to slow down anytime soon. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's only getting bigger, right? That's that's one of the realities of the market. People have voted. They voted with their wallet. And low-cost, diversified, passive investing is winning. And it's winning across the board for all sorts of investor types. I think it's a reality we're going to see more growth in passive the passive investing. So I think that's just the reality we're operating in and we have to think about it that way. My personal perspective is that, you know, one of the one of the things you often hear people say is, you know, well, how about pass-through voting? How about if you just transfer that power back to investors? And, and you certainly see certain parts of that happening in the market today. You see a lot of institutional clients, for example, investors, for example, um, having their own customized voting policies. I think in the world of retail investing, though, you know, if you really think about it, do investors really want to be voting on thousands of proposals. Um, and even if you narrow it down to maybe the shareholder proposals I mentioned, there's still several hundred of those. Um, so I, I, my, I think that the real focus area for now is just transparency, mm-hmm. you know, making sure investors know how that vote's being used and that, that, that they see alignment in that. And also having a dialogue and sharing that information with investors. So, you know, version one of that for us is just putting our votes on our website. I think there's so many more interesting things to do around creating a dialogue with investors. But that's where I feel like at least more immediately the the focus area really ought to be from an industry perspective. In terms of creating that dialogue with investors, what do you think about leveraging technology here? And I've talked about this in the past where let's say end investors can log their ESG preferences into a website. And then those preferences are aggregated and the fund company votes accordingly. Do you think that could be a way where you sort of better align the interests of, of Main Street investors and, and Wall Street? I, I'm just wondering, you know, longer term, I agree, transparency is always a good <laughs> guiding principle. But uh, I, I just wonder how this plays out longer term. And, and maybe it does come down to if investors are so inclined, they can log their broad ESG preferences. And then, again, a fund company can aggregate those and vote accordingly. What do you, what do you think about something like that? Yeah, I think you'll certainly see things like that begin to happen. Um, I will say one of the maybe precursors or smaller steps on this on this road that actually um, happened when we when we launched was um, we were added into Betterment's SRI portfolios, and when we were added, they actually surveyed all the investors in their SRI portfolios on what were the issue areas that they cared about most that they hoped um, Engine Number One thought about, and it was non-binding. It was it was just getting a pulse. On the, on the investors in the fund. And, um, you know, obviously that was their prerogative and their platform. But I think that you, you'll probably see more of this where just better understanding um, these dynamics. And I also think then, you know, once, once right now proxy reporting is just that it's a report. You know, it's so hard for an individual investor to feel attached to it. But um, as, you, as we start simplifying our storytelling and really bringing it to life, I wonder if investors themselves will just also want to know Am I aligned? So they'll, they'll themselves start asking the question, you know, how are, how are you voting? All right. Briefly here, we haven't touched on NetZ yet, the uh, engine number one transform climate ETF. Do you want to briefly explain the CTF, which, again, launched earlier this year? Yeah, this is a very different product than vote. Um, NetZ is an actively managed high conviction ETF um, that invests in the companies that we believe will drive the decarbonization of our economy. Uh, unlike other climate funds, um, we go where the emissions are. So I think with Net Z, we're flipping the whole climate conversation on its head. You know, as the vast majority of climate strategies are built on the concept of divestment that we just talked about, which is really to say that a good climate strategy um, excludes or leans away from high emitting companies and high emitting sectors in our economy. But but we we take a totally different approach. We're own and engage. We go where the emissions are, and 75% of global greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation, energy, and agriculture. So 
um, as opposed to optimizing for green today, which I think is the approach most climate funds take. We're really focused on the transformation of brown to green and picking the companies that we think are best positioned to win in that. So there's absolutely uh, impact meets uh, alpha story that we're trying to deliver for investors. Okay, so this is perfect because before I let you go, I thought the perfect way to close here would be to have you sort of define ESG in the context of investing. And I think you've done an excellent job of laying out engine number one's approach uh, and how you view the world here. But as I'm sure you're aware, Yasmin, there are a lot of products out there with an ESG label. And I do feel like this is a real point of confusion for investors. So if you could leave investors with just a few words of wisdom on how they should think about ESG overall, what, what would those be? How, how would you guide investors with this, uh, this product proliferation in the space right now? I focus on, on um, so ESG has historically been around using data to rank companies and finding the good ones and leaning away from the bad ones. And I think that's a really complicated approach. It's very hard to know what's good and bad. Um, if there's one thing I want to force us as an industry, and I hope investors force us on, is trying to link um, sustainable investing with performance. Um, and I think this is becoming very topical right now. If you see, you know, with energy outperforming, how many investors and traditional ESG strategies are feeling like there's just this trade-off. Um, and so I think really understanding the spaces where you can drive impact at scale and create value for shareholders is one. Um, and then really asking your managers if you focus on this space, what's your theory of change? What do you believe is different about the world if, you know, I as an investor or we as investors invest in the fund? Um, and I think really pushing managers on those two topics is where we, we need to be focusing. Well, Yasmin, so great having you back on the podcast. Really enjoyed the conversation. It's always a pleasure. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me. That was Yasmin Daya Bilger, head of ETFs at Engine Number One. Digital assets applications, technology, and use cases have exploded in recent years. Digital assets miners have emerged as a crucial part of this ecosystem and play a critical role in the validating and processing of blockchain transactions. Consider the Vanek Digital Assets Mining ETF, ticker DAM, when positioning your portfolio to include digital assets mining companies. Investing involves substantial risk and high volatility, including possible loss of principal. An investor should consider the fund's objective risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. To obtain a perspective, Call 800-826-2333 or visit vanek.com. Please read the prospectus carefully before investing. I'm now joined in studio by Tommy Mancuso, president and co-founder of the Bad Investment Company, who back in December, they launched their first ETF. It's called the Bad ETF. The ticker symbol is appropriately BAD, B-A-D. 
Hami, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Nate. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being in here studio. It's been a while since we do a lot of in-person stuff. Yeah, you know, it's so funny. So I did not realize until yesterday that you were actually based here in Kansas City. And so we're doing this on the fly, having you in studio. But it's such a, a small world. No kidding. No kidding. It's kind of funny. Uh, Kansas City is this little mecca, I would say, of quality financial companies. And we're all right across in each other's backyards. I mean, I, I think my drive over here was maybe five minutes. So. I, I just can't believe we haven't previously crossed paths. I'm, I'm dumbfounded. Um, so, so let me ask you this. L- let's start by, by talking a little bit about your background and why you started the, the Bad Investment Company. And then we'll, we'll certainly get into the ETF. Give us some background here. Yeah, yeah. So basically started in the financial industries right out of college. I went to San Diego State at a, uh, 2015. And I was obviously, I would say, a younger advisor. And it kind of allowed me to have a different perspective, um, especially when you look at the average age of a financial advisor, which is you know north of 50 years old. Um, so through that, though, I kind of had a, an interesting perspective where I saw the rise of fintech companies, the rise of retail um, you know, there used to be a higher barrier to entry into the stock market, but now it's your savings account when we look at the developments in Robinhood and some of the other fin- fintech companies that are out there. So now we have, you know, this merger of quality information in the palm of your hand. You don't necessarily always need a stockbroker, even though I think everyone does to some extent. We're not all industry experts. So you kind of put all this together, allowed me to develop, I would say, a unique perspective in the current landscape from a young, young perspective young advisor perspective. So given all the competition, my friends are all kind of doing their own thing on their own. I knew that this whole meme stock craze and everyone became their own stockbroker in 2020 during the pandemic. I knew that this whole meme craze and those things were not going to really be truly sustainable. So I wanted to create, I would say, an alternative appeal to this new wave of investors that was actually going to be able to offer them truly sustainable or long-term investments, not something that was just going to have a quick pop and then we're waiting for it to do, go again on some kind of short squeeze or meme craze, like I mentioned. So that kind of led me to this development of the bad investment company. And now that we've seen with kind of our flagship ETF, the bad ETF, um, it's a little bit contrarian to the current landscape right now where we've seen this whole world of ESG but there's been so much lack of clarity surrounding that to some extent. Um, there hasn't really been any statistical um, you know, things that have proven that that's going to overperform. And that's kind of what got me here. I wanted to create a, a, a good name, a fun name that's going to create you know, some buzz in the industry. But also, I want us to be taken extremely seriously at the same time and know that we're actually looking at the best interest of the investor. And we don't think social stigmas or anything like that should be a primary factor when it comes to making investment decisions. We think if we're making decisions in an investment standpoint, it should be what's going to maximize returns at the end of the day. Okay. So this is perfect because you were actually walking into studio as I was wrapping up my conversation with Yasmin over at engine number one. And I'm not sure if you heard what she said at the end of that conversation. She said, it's hard to know what's good and bad when we were talking about ETF. So so I'm curious, how are you determining what is bad? Let's walk through the bad ETF and the overall investment thesis, and, and then we can go from there. So I, I know this is index-based. Mm-hmm. Just take us through the ETF itself. Yep. So the index is right in the acronym. It's based off of betting, alcohol, and drug companies, B-A-D. Now, when I say drugs, that is primarily surrounding around the 
pharmaceutical, and biotech industries. Now, we do have a 10% allocation for cannabis, and I'll kind of explain that here in a second. But how the portfolio is constructed is equal weightings of 33.3% of each of those sectors. So 33% betting in casinos, 33.3% of alcohol. But let me take a step back. We decided to take the cannabis sector of that 10% and allocate that from the alcohol side of standpoints. So we have 23.3% alcohol, 10.10% in the cannabis space. And we primarily did that because of the quality companies or the the quality companies in the drug sector that we didn't want to take away from. And the alcohol companies are a little bit top heavy in some of the bigger players. So we thought to kind of have a staple in there, you know, we take those top alcohol companies. But we wanted to include cannabis in this. It originally was not our uh, originally not in our original plan, but when we kind of looked at what is the future growth of the cannabis space, we did see that this could offer some growth in the portfolio, just given the current landscape, legalization, just kind of you know it being more socially accepted this day and age. And then on the drug side, that kind of fills in the gap of our second of our third tier, which is biotechs and pharmaceutical companies. So there's about 57 holdings. It rebalances on a quarterly basis. Um, aside from that, it's it's pretty straightforward. It's primarily based off a of market cap. And the reason we did that off of the we wanted the largest companies in each of these sectors was to kind of mitigate some of that volatility that we may see. In small caps, we kind of see a little bit more of speculation but or more speculative type of things. It may, you know, offer some stronger growth. But at the same time, there's more downside in those smaller cap industries. So focusing on the large caps in these allows us to mitigate some of that volatility, which is extremely important because you and I both know that investors make poor decisions when there's more volatile, volatile, right? They don't – there's you know that thing called loss aversion hurts more to lose something than it's rewarding to gain. So if we could protect them to some extent on that downside by just focusing on these bigger companies, we think it's going to set them up for more long-term success. And real quick on the cannabis side, I don't Mm -hmm. want to get hung up here, but these are Canadian cannabis companies, right? These aren't swaps on U.S. multi-state operators and those sorts of things. That is correct. That is correct. So we are primarily all U.S.-based companies. Now we do have some ADRs, which are companies that trade on New York Stock Exchange or the NASDAQ or U.S. US exchanges. But yes, primarily all uh, U.S.-based companies, unless they're an ADR that trades on another Exchange. Okay, so. so what I thought might be interesting here, if if you think about the CTF overall, to your point, this owns a third in gambling or betting, mm-hmm. a third in alcohol or cannabis, or and cannabis, and then a third in, in pharmaceuticals and, and biotech. Let's maybe briefly highlight each of these categories. And you know, it's interesting. I'll, I'll tell you on the betting side, and, and you know this, but here in Kansas, the Senate recently passed legislation to legalize sports betting. And I believe this is now actually sitting on the governor's uh, desk. We'll see how long it, it sits yeah. there. But, but <laughs> things do appear to be moving quickly. Is, is this where you see the biggest growth opportunity moving forward with individual states continuing to legalize sports betting? Or is that just a small sliver of the overall pie on the, on the betting or gambling side? Absolutely. I think that the sports wagering and some of the things that we're seeing on the ballots is definitely going to be kind of the jet fuel for the growth in our allocation overall. In the casino space, it's interesting, right? They may have gone 
you know, through tough government scrutiny. But now we're starting to see all the, you know, possible tax benefits that states can generate. I believe there's about 34 states have legalized some form of sports betting. We expect that to be, you know, probably federally legal in the next 10 years, if I had to guess, just because the government obviously wants to have their hand in some of these tax revenues that are are being generated. So you kind of look at that landscape. If something's being embraced by the government, which is interesting, considered this could maybe be a sin stock, yet we're looking at some of these industries, and especially in the casino space, being embraced because there's potential benefits. I also think, you know, with the sports betting stuff, it's only going to pick up more steam. We're seeing advertisements in the NBA finals, NHL hockey, um, it's almost engaging viewers more to some extent. And I think this is going to be good for sports overall, but also fantastic for the casinos, right? Because opposed to you having to drive to the sports book, now we're seeing, I think, 90% of tickets, sports bets are played, are, are uh, uh, submitted online. So now your sports book is your house. You can be on your couch and make a sports bet. You can pay attention to the game, get a little $2,500 bet on there, and have a little bit more entertainment. So I think there's a lot of positives at the end. And just, you know, the legalization of this is just going to further grow. Um, so I'm excited for the casino space. And, you know, you look at some of the other tailwinds behind that. There's a whole reopening story behind the casinos. You know, it's struggled a little bit because of the exposure with some of our bigger companies like Wynn and Macaw out in China. But once we kind of get all that going, and we expect by hopefully a fourth quarter of this upcoming year, we're going to have this whole reopening casino play intact. And we think there's a big desire for people to go you know, to Vegas and these other places. By the way, the, uh, the one negative with legalized sports betting here in Kansas, uh, an unhappy wife for me. I don't think she wants me <laughs> sitting on the couch putting a sports bets in. You, you mentioned the, uh, the, this reopening story, and certainly that plays into um, casinos. But if, if we now move on and talk about alcohol and, and cannabis, I'm curious what you're seeing here. And I'm going to lead you just a little bit because I was just reading a really interesting Wall Street Journal article where they were talking about how people are finally getting back out. Uh, when, when you think about concert ticket sales and uh, sports uh, events, I mean, tickets, are, they're, they're just skyrocketing, the, the sales in this space. Obviously, bars and restaurants, vacations. I, I'm assuming that's having a positive impact on the alcohol Absolutely. That's something we have definitely realized here is there's a need to get out. And you look at like something like Live Nation, you look at all the ticket sales with their earnings last week and whatnot. That's going to correlate to alcohol sales. And one thing that I found interesting is that even though we're in this inflationary environment, alcohol companies have so far been able to uh, uh, attract their customers or keep their customers with increasing their prices, which is why uh, InBev or Budweiser had just beat their earnings at the end of the day. It's one of those consumer staples as well in one of our portfolios, right? At the end of the day, people are going to drink their alcohol under most economic cycles, sometimes even more if there's some kind of recession that's being forecasted in right now. But with that being said, we're also in this reopening narrative, and there's a desire to get out. There's more events. There's more social. I, I truly think people missed getting out and being social, and that's going to obviously, when we're out, People typically drink under those circumstances, and you know some of those higher margin companies are going to be out there. Last year, there was a little bit of a struggle with the alcohol uh, industry because of oversupply or some of these uh, RTDs or those spirited canned cocktails and whatnot. However, 
due to supply chains, these bigger players that are in our portfolio are going to be able to acquire them because they have the distribution strategies. They went and bought all the aluminum cans well in advance. So you're going to maybe see some consolidation in that space as well. So we're excited for the alcohol uh, industry as well. Okay, and then briefly on the the drug or pharmaceutical side, Mm -hmm. just Mm -hmm. anything in particular standing out to you here? Yeah, you know, the one uh, positive tailwind that everyone's pretty excited for is the mRNA technology that helped us kind of get out of the pandemic due to all the vaccines. They're going to start looking at those technology or that type of uh, biotech and see how they can apply it to other diseases. On top of that, we're looking at some in Europe. They're looking at uh, right now they base a lot of their drugs off of country to country. They're looking for a more universal system, like the more like USA and the FDA. Think about it as the state, each state needed to approve a drug there. It's not so universal. So that's going to be another positive tailwind for that industry. And then again, We've seen the rapid deployment, and this would be the kind of final thing on, on the pharma side, rapid deployment of these vaccines. And these far, big pharma companies have learned how to uh, you know, manage their supply chains, get it, out to the, get it out to the public, get them approved in a more rapid manner. Um, so, again, you kind of add all those three things up. There's a lot of tailwinds just around the pharma industry as well. Let me ask you this just overall. So Clearly, if you look at these three segments in the ETF, these are time-tested industries, right? They've endured multiple economic cycles. They've traditionally held up pretty well. Profitability has typically been there. And, and you were alluding to this earlier, but you know, if the past is any indication, we know that consumers are going to continue drinking alcohol and consu- consumers are going to continue gambling and consumers are going to need medicine and drugs. But if I look at the performance of this ETF so far this year, uh, and let's compare it to the S&P 500. It's down every bit as much as the, the S&P 500. What, why is that? Why hasn't this held up a little bit better in this environment? I think that's a little bit uh, primarily due to some of the growth avenues in our company and maybe some profit taking on the biotech and pharma side. We saw a little bit of a pullback there, right, with all those companies that were high rising stay at home stocks. We've seen that kind of come back to earth a little bit. And then on the other side, the casinos have obviously taken a bit of a hit, especially those uh, those larger ones that have exposure to China and some of their lockdowns. So those things have obviously negatively impacted our fund to some extent. We do believe in the long-term outlook overall. As you mentioned, people are going to get sick, unfortunately. People are going to drink, and people are just going to gamble, especially if it's now in the palm of their hand as well. So again, we would ex- should have we would have expected it to perform a little bit better under these circumstances, but getting the rapid growth in some of these other kind of companies and just growth com- growth stocks being hit over the past three months, it's to be expected that we're not going to be able to be perfect every time. And also, in fairness, I mean, we're talking about a very short period of time, right? Yeah, we're talking yeah. <laughs> you know five six months here. So, okay, before I let you go, um, I, I did want to ask you again. You, you heard some of my last segment, and Mm -hmm. I talked about the proliferation of ESG ETFs. And it's interesting because I would say if you look at the vast majority of those, they're actually screening out the types of companies that that the bad ETF holds. What what do you think about that? What do you think about the proliferation of ESG ETFs and and the fact that your holdings are being screened out intentionally from some of these? Again, as I mentioned earlier, I don't think we should sacrifice returns for social stigmas by any means. Um, There hasn't been necessarily any kind of statistical evidence that ESG is going to overperform or anything of that nature. Um, And then again, you know, when we look at, you know, ESG and 
how it's maybe impacted our society or even today's environment. We've seen it struggle and impact our oil industry and maybe be a little bit responsible because these oil companies are get, aren't getting the same funding. And I'm not going to say we're contra ESG at the end of the day, right? We really want everyone to do good. And I even think our, our ESG rating is like a B or triple B or something, which is a little bit ironic. But when you look at our companies at the end of the day, they've actually have already withstood government scrutiny. They've gone through all the pains of growth and all that type of you know things that come with any growing industry. And I think it kind of sets us up for the long term to be actually a little bit more sustainable than an ESG fund that maybe is a little bit more speculative. I think some of the issues, too, is just the lack of clarity. Um, you know, someone may score really well in the environmental social side, but fail somewhere else in the, in the whole ESG scoring process. So if they could maybe refine what that process looks like, that would probably be advantageous for the industry as a whole. And I think they'd probably find that, you know, not every uh, company in the bad ETF is a negative ESG fund either. So it's just a little bit ironic at the end of the day. Well, Tommy, congratulations on the ETF. Now that I know you're in Kansas City, we'll have to go grab a beer. Absolutely. And maybe put down a couple sports bets while yep. watching a game yep. somewhere. We can do that in we'll person. We'll take an Advil the next day, too. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but uh, best of luck to you moving forward. And thank you for uh, joining me this week. Thank you, Nate. I appreciate it. That was Tommy Mancuso, president and co-founder of the Bad Investment Company. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. At this time, I want to thank iShares. If you would like to learn more about the iShares Sustainable ETFs, you can visit iShares.com sustainable. Next week, I'll be joined by Fidelity's Greg Friedman. We're going to talk thematic investing. So Fidelity recently launched a Metaverse ETF and a Crypto Industry and Digital Payments ETF. So we'll look at those. And then Kelly Yee, head of index research at Coindesk Indices, We'll discuss their crypto indices and offer some thoughts on the future of digital assets. Until then, have a great week, everyone.